Psalm 42, I've just simply entitled this, and we saw some of it in the songs that we sang before service, is trust. Trusting in the Lord. Now, if the situation and circumstances aren't hard, is it really trust? You only know the magnitude of how you trust either in uh, somebody or, or even in God based upon the difficulty of the situation. How many times have you heard somebody trying to pressure you into a particular direction to go, and in order, for you, in order to make you feel a little bit more comfortable, they'll say, well, just trust me. Uh, just a little tip tonight. When anybody says, just trust me, don't. Don't. Because that trust is just based upon, well, them. You don't know how truthful they are or not and their abilities. But what is it that we are to trust in? We know who we are to trust, but what's the avenue through that trust is the Word of God. It's that which you have on your lap tonight. Matter of fact, I don't even ask you to trust me. That's why we encourage you. Sunday morning, if you arrived here today without a Bible, we'd like for you to follow along. And if you don't have a Bible today, raise your hands. The ushers will bring one to you because we encourage you. Don't trust anybody. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord, and the avenue through which our trust in the Lord flows is through the Word of God. And so true trust is a reliance or resting of the mind on the integrity, the veracity, justice, and friendship of other or other sound principle of another person. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. The main issue with trust is, it involves not knowing. You don't know how the situation is going to work out. Not understanding. You don't always know the direction that has been set before you. Not having ability. You're helpless to the situation. When we have to trust, it's usually because a situation or circumstance is bigger than we are or maybe beyond our abilities. But it still entails also obeying and moving forward when it comes to the Lord and the things of the Lord. I remember when we were moving into this property, it was just so obvious that it was from God. And again, I've told the story many times, not going to get into any details, but just that one day we had to be out of our other property, and this man comes into my office and asks us if we're interested in a church property. And I thought, well, yeah, let's go see it. And it looked great in the whole thing. And then we found out what the price tag was. And there's where the trust came in, because we're all excited. God's brought us to this property. And then all of a sudden, you see something bigger than what you perceive your ability to be. And then all of a sudden, where does that trust go? You continue to trust in the Lord. And we've been trusting in the Lord for the rent here, for our lease, for the past 15 years. Our lease is going to be up beginning of next year and we'll trust in him if he wants to move us on or if he wants to keep us here whatever it is that the lord has but again trust involves a situation that is beyond us and we cast our cares and we 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 give of ourselves over to the lord trusting that he is going to go before us and that he is going to work it out now when i say trusting that he is going to go before us that that may be not be that may not be very clear for what we see in the scriptures trusting that God is already before us, that God is already working in our situation. He's already working in our future, and he's doing so for our benefit, for our spiritual benefit. Doesn't mean that whatever it is that we struggle with isn't going to be hard. Matter of fact, again, as I've said many times, it's probably going to tear the heart right out of your chest. It's going to test you to the core of who you are. That's where change comes about. That's where Christian maturity is fostered. And so trust, 
Trust is an outward expression of the faith and hope that we have in the Lord. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. And what God was telling Judah as they were in Babylonian captivity was to trust in me. And we know that that trust was going to have to last them for 70 years before he released them back to the land. A great biblical example is King David and the trust that he had. He trusted in the Lord in the face of the bear and the lion when they came for his sheep. He trusted when confronted with his giant because he knew that this uncircumcised Philistine was blaspheming his God. And he trusted in the midst of the Saul situation. Two times his, uh, his, his, his assistant says that God has delivered him into your hand. He could have taken Saul's life very easily, but David was of the mindset, no, God is the one who put him into his service. God's the one who anointed him king. If God wants to remove him, then I'm going to allow God to remove him. I'm not going to allow God to remove him, but it's going to be God who removes him. His mindset is, is that he was going to trust in God. Well, understand, because that kind of ramps up a little bit when you remember David's point of trust is in 1 Samuel 16, 12. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, speaking of David, for this is the one. Saul was going to be removed as king. And God directed Samuel to go anointed one of the sons of Jesse. He looked at all of the sons, but none of them were quite right until they saw the youngest, David, and it was him who was anointed. So you have David who was anointed king. If I told you you were going to be anointed president, get, up, get rid of all those debates that are going on right now and all those people, and, and you're going to be it. But when? When's it going to happen, Pastor Mike? Well, not right now. Just, just wait. Are you able to wait? Are you, are you at some point going to try and cause it, make it happen yourself? David could have done that because, again, he's waiting and Saul's seeking after him to take his life. He's in the wilderness when, in his mind, he could have thought, I should be in the palace. But, but God allowed that situation because he's building trust in him and he's building character in King David. And even when David, again, had the opportunity to take the life of Saul to force to happen what God said was going to happen, not, he didn't do it. He, he just depended upon the Lord. He put his trust in God, not in the schemes of man. And you could probably even build the biblical excuse for taking the life of Saul and assuming the throne, but he was going to have none of it. To trust in God is to depend upon his word to such a degree that your relationship with him is modeled through the life that you live. People seeing the outward expression of your trust, your faith, and your hope, and they see the magnitude of who it is that you are really trusting in and your belief in what he is able to do and your belief that he is going to move in your life. So let me ask you, do you believe that God is going to move in your life? I mean, regardless if you're going through trials or even if you're not going through trials. And, and the, you don't want a raising of hands or whatever, but deep within your heart, do you really believe that God is going to continue to move in your life to achieve his will and, and he's got reason and purpose for you? If you can come to the place where the answer is yes, then trust in him. And you can say, okay, I'll trust, but you're going to go through some hard things that are going to test that trust. And tested trust is trust that grows. 
grows and is strengthened. And as God brings you up to one plateau, then he'll bring you up to another. And it's a constant work that God does in your life throughout your Christian life. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, of all of who you are. And it says, Lean not on your own understanding. Again, King David didn't lean on his own understanding, but he was just simply trusting in God. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all of your ways, in all of your life, all the little categories and areas and cubbyholes of your life. Acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. The next three psalms will be modeled through the life of Korah. It says the sons of Korah, but more than likely it was just one who had written this, this particular psalm. But nonetheless, Korah, who is Korah? Well, Korah was a descendant from Levi. He was related to Moses and Miriam and Aaron, but he was of a different, um, not a different tribe, but a I can't think of the word I'm thinking of, but a different subgroup of, of Levi. And they were the ones who, well, the Levites were the ones who were dedicated to temple service and to the priesthood. The Korah and the sons of Korah, they were dedicated to the worship of the Lord. And so Korah's descendants were called to serve God in the temple in the capacity of what we would call worship leaders. We see this in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 31 through 32, when David is referring to the sons of Korah. He says, now these are the men whom David appointed over the service of the song of the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest. They were ministering with music before the dwelling place of the tabernacle of meeting until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they served in their office according to their order. And second in Chronicles chapter 20, verse 19, it says, Then the Levites of the children of the Korites and the children of the Korites stood up and praised the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. The blessing of this worship leader is to be able to worship God with the gifting that God has given in the ministry given to him through the ministry as they minister to others. Just the pleasure of seeing others worshiping God based upon what God has done and how God has filled them with the Spirit. Now, Korah didn't have a really good beginning. In Numbers chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, we see that he was rebelling. He was rebelling against, more than likely, I believe Moses was his uncle, but nonetheless, he was rebelling against him, asking, are you the only one who God speaks through? He became full of himself, Korah did, and he tried to assume the position of leadership that God had bestowed upon Moses and it didn't turn out so well for him. Korah and his household, the ground opened, him, opened up and swallowed him up. But we're seeing the descendants, the sons, when it says the sons of Korah, the descendants of Korah. And God is so gracious and God is so merciful. We're told in Ezekiel 18, verse 20, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And so God redeemed Korah, and Korah is there, and they're worshiping God, and they're in the midst of the congregation. And just think, 
you know, Israel and all that they had gone through. Now, this is a time, this is not necessarily, we don't know specifically the time that this is in, but it's not specifically the exact time of King David. More than likely, it's further down the road, and it seems to be during the time of Babylonian captivity. As Babylon had come, one of the times that they had come, and they had put Judah under subjection to them, and they took some of the best and brightest away, it's very possible what's happening here. And so there is this dynamic to those whom God has given a position of service to them. And we even see, as with Korah and the position that he got, pride entered in as far as, well, there's two stumbling points that are inherent with worship ministry, visibility and intimacy. Visibility in that they got a very prominent position within the church and that up here on the platform. Intimacy, well, as far as they can stir the emotions of people with the songs they sing. And I'm not saying that all worship people do this or whatever. I like to believe that we have a good worship team here that's doing it from the heart. And God uses that. And that's a good thing. And those things are okay. But it's when pride wells up. In Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 15, it says, The Son of Man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. Now, there's a picture here of what seems to be the devil in heaven. It's believed that Satan was at one point the worship leader in heaven. It says, <clears throat> excuse me, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardis, the topaz, the diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and your pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. Those would be instruments used in worship. You were the anointed cherub, so who he's speaking of is an angel. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God, walking back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. And skipping down to verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they may gaze at you. The idea is that it be a warning to others. And so the devil at some point, we see in various portions of the scripture, pride entered in. In Isaiah, we see that he wanted to be like the most he wanted to assume the position of God, and because of that, he sinned, and because of that, he was cast down. So anybody that has a position of visibility and intimacy is in danger. Behind the pulpit as well, pastors have stumbled and fallen as well. But here the Korites seem to be doing very well, but now there's this particular situation. Look at the first three verses. First of all, starting out with the title, To the Chief Musician, A Contemplation of the Sons of Korah. He says, as a deer pants for, or, let me start again, as a deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, where is your God? Seems to be this spiritual depression that has come upon him. He, he's been separated, it seems, from his ministry and separated from his place of worship. And he's looking back and, and just re, being reminded of, uh, of just the joy that he used to have as he was able to enter into the congregation and to lead people in worship. 
and maybe it's just the joy of just personally worshiping the Lord. But whatever it might be, it seems that he has it no longer, but it's affected to him to the core of who he is. This spiritual depression comes from being separated from his means of worship, fellowship, and service. Seems like he's being taken captive against his will. If you look over at verses 9 and 10, I will say to my God, say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? And so the setting, at least the setting to which I want to look at this, and, you know, there could be an issue of sin and there's disobedience, whatever it might be, but if you put it in the setting of these worship leaders as when Babylon came and took the best and the brightest of Judah away, of course they would take those who were ministering in song, especially those who did well, because keep in mind, if you're in Babylon, you can't turn on the TV or the radio. I don't think they had Pandora back then. They definitely didn't have the internet. So... Um, what would they listen to? They would have singers, and if you've got skilled singers, that would be a resource that you would take from a country. And so just think of it along those lines. Korah is being taken captive, and as he's being taken captive, if you've ever been to Israel, obviously being taken captive, they're going to be headed east. What's east of Israel is these little mountains, a little bit more than hills that are there, and you would go over that, and then you would head into the Jordan Valley, and from there you would head in the direction of Babylon. And I would imagine as you're going over those hills and if you're looking back you would be almost on the same level as the temple and just looking back it's as if he's getting and I'm just painting a picture here but it's as if he's getting one last glimpse of that place that I used to go and I used to fellowship there and bring back the memories of the intimacy with God and the people who are there. And he would be looking back, and he would see, that's the place that I remember sitting and just singing my heart out before the Lord. And it was a blessing to sing to God, but also to lead these people before the Lord. And he's of the mindset, but no more. Matter of fact, again, in verse 3, in the last part of verse 10, where is your God? The idea there, that's kind of a, a mocking Where's your God now, buddy? Yeah, you used to go down there and you burn those cows and you used to sing your songs and you would sing to this God, but where is your God now? Because the mindset back then is if our country beat your country, the idea is that our gods are better than your gods. Well, that's kind of what they're doing. They're mocking him and as he's mourning and he's realizing all that he has lost here, where's your God now? What is he able to do for you? You've put your trust in him, but look what he has done to you. So this worship leader has a passion to lead worship, but is unable to do that which God had empowered him to do. And I would imagine it's just the frustration of the outside looking in, of not being able to do what you used to do or maybe lost a loved one that you spent time with or whatever and that relationship was severed and it's so desiring to have that back and and you can't keep in mind the jewish mind jerusalem the temple that's where god was when you went up to jerusalem you were going to god and what is he doing he's going away from god and he's being forced away from god again in his own mind contrary to his own will as a deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? Our thirst, it's one of those physical urges that we go to great lengths to satisfy. 
Have you ever been so, so thirsty that you just so have that desire for, for water to quench that thirst or hunger, to have that food to quench that hunger? Or, or, or I remember one time I was at the beach, I was probably in junior high or whatever, and the waves started coming in really big. And I thought, I can handle these. I couldn't handle them. I was trying to body surf on them, and it brought me under, and it started turning me around. I remember my face grinding in the sand, and try, at, at a certain point, I didn't even know which way was up. And, and, and you're trying to get breath, but there's nowhere to get a breath, and you're trying to get to the top, and so finally, you figure it out, and you get it to the top, and as soon as you get it to the top, another wave comes down on top of you, and there's almost that there's almost that desperation because you, you're, you're afraid and you want to get that, you, just with a passion, you want to get that breath. And that's the idea behind him. As a deer pants for water. I've seen deer, in essence is what he's saying, in a dry place. And I've seen them when they finally come upon that water brook and how, 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 how desperate they are just for that drink. The same is with my soul, my personality, he's saying, my soul thirst for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So again, Jerusalem, that's where God is. I'm being led out against my will. When am I going to be able to be brought back? I mean, just think of how we so take, we take church for, for granted. You know, on Sunday morning, this place is packed. Where's everybody during the midweek? You know, look at people in China. People in China are being killed and persecuted for their faith, and they just have such this passion and desire to get together. What if this was taken away from us? We probably remember the days. I remember when we used to come and we used to sing. We had fellowship. I remember when we used to serve in, in vacation Bible school and all the kids and all that was going on, or we had this outreach or retreat or whatever what happens if all of that is taken away that's the idea here this is the depths to the despair that this man is being brought to in matthew chapter 5 verse 6 it says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled and the idea is those who understand understand and don't take the things of the lord for granted but have a desire for the things of the lord and so my tears my tears have been my food day and night. And he's saying, my tears, my tears can't satisfy. This thirst that I have for God, I, I can't satisfy that thirst myself. And the idea is that his tears are there so much and that he's drinking them in, but that's not doing it for him. As all that is bringing is a greater depth of mourning and an understanding of what he's missing and an understanding of his separation from God. My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me again, where is your God? And again, it's about that, that concept once again of, of fellowshipping with the Lord, no doubt, and God's with us wherever we go. It's the church that we have a higher awareness of his presence in our life. But it's also fellowshipping with one another, realizing that I'm not going to go into the congregation. It's, a, it's an exciting thing for me on Sunday, the beginning of service, just all the busyness that's going on around here and people coming in and maybe somebody you haven't seen in a while that's here today and you know all of those things. And, and just to be amongst the people or after service to be fellowshipping out there and just the joy that that is and the joy that that brings. And again, the Bible tells us that it's so necessary for us to have that fellowship. Everybody, every member of the church is important and even essential for the spiritual growth of one another. 
It's never good for a Christian to be alone. Now, can a Christian grow? Yeah, God can meet that person, but seemingly, and this is God ordained, not to the degree of which a person is able to grow and flourish when he is in the midst of the congregation. The Bible tells me iron sharpens iron, but left to ourselves, we become spiritually dull. The Bible tells me I need accountability, someone to tell me when I wander off the pathway of righteousness. Being able to give what I receive from the Lord is essential in a Christian's life because then you will be coming back looking for more. And I can't do those things. Those things will be non-existent in my Christian life if I'm by myself. And it's, it's just a horrible thing when people isolate themselves from fellowship. There's an element of the Lord that they're isolating themselves from when they do that. And again, what is the enemy saying? Where is your God now? And the idea here is, is that you're thirsty? Well, come and take a drink from our well. And again, loneliness and hurt, people do that. They turn to alcohol or drugs or whatever, turn to a relationship or toys that they'll try to use to mask these things. But the thing about it is, we have that which is necessary for the person who fits this description who has this hunger and this thirst for the Lord and the things of the Lord. That's what the church in general has to offer them. That's what we have to offer as we come in. That's, that's why we call it church service. And the idea isn't, although I pray that when you do come here, you are served, but coming here with the mindset of serving others as well. And what I mean by serving others isn't so much giving of your spiritual gifts, although that's a big part of it, but just giving of yourself. I mean, you serving somebody else is just giving of yourself, just giving of your attention to somebody else, just giving of your care to somebody else, to give of your understanding to somebody else. It's there that you see the human touch in the midst of the divine touch of the Lord, and that's what God uses, and that's what ministers to people. Somebody had mentioned something, you know, on Facebook, and they have the reviews on Facebook. Somebody had mentioned something, and it was good, um, and I looked up, and there was a bunch of other reviews there that I haven't seen. And so I was wondering, what kind of church do we have? Or at least what do other people think? And, and, and the overriding theme was is that it's such a loving church. Now, it's not that I'm up here looking into people's eyes. Oh, how I love you all. No, I do love you all, but, you know, that's kind of weird too. Um, what, what it is is they're experiencing the love of Christ through the people who are here. It's through as we grow and we mature in the Lord, in the things of the Lord, God's love radiates through us into the lives of other people. They may not be able to put their finger on it when they come, but as they leave these doors, they should, and it seems like God is doing that work. They've experienced the love of Christ. Verse 4, when I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude, I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Again, it's just those good old days, those good old days when we would kind of meet each other as we were parking our cars and coming into church. Those good old days when we would walk in through the doors and there were friends that we haven't seen, well, maybe not since the week before, but nonetheless, it was a blessing to see them and to come together and have that fellowship with the Lord. 
It's the days when we see our kids would gather together. I remember the days when we would even go to the evening service, then afterwards go out to eat with other people or even invite other people into our homes. Our kids were young, and can Billy come over? Yeah, and Billy's parents would come over. And just to have that fellowship, to talk about the things that were talked about at service that night, and just the various things that were going on in our lives. And again, that's just true Christian fellowship, and it's the things that memories are built upon, but they ought not just to be past memories, they should be realities, current realities in our Christian life as well. It's what church is all about. Again, literal definition of church, a gathering together of people for a common purpose. Verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. So he's kind of understanding I'm going through all this depression in these things, but what I have done is I've taken my eyes off the Lord. I'm looking at these ugly Babylonians or this sin that I've committed or whatever it might be, and I've allowed this to get bigger in my life than the reality of God and who God is. Although he longed for the past and all that he had had before, it's at this point that there's a bit of a turning point as he is reminded of the future. Again, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Faith, trusting in God for today. Hope, trusting in God for our future. He says, why are you so cast down, O my soul? Why is my relationship with God so much in the depths? Why am I so depressed? Why am I so bummed out here? Why am I just so like this? Why are you disquieted within me? Why is there just so much turmoil? And, and the praise that I used to offer is no longer there. But you know what? I am to hope in God, not in my situations or my circumstances, because again, those can be hard, those can even be bad, but are those things that God will use to bring us back to where we need to be. Hope in God. We always forget our hope is in not anything else. It wasn't in Jerusalem for even for the Jew. Their hope was always in a relationship with God. Our hope is, my hope, our hope is in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Nobody can touch that. What is it we're told in, in John chapter 10? Nobody can snatch you out of the Father's hand. I'm safe and secure in the Lord. For I shall yet praise him. Because I hope in God, I will in the future praise him for what he has done. At some point, I'm going to come to an understanding of what God's plan and purpose was in all of this. And, and, and for the son of Korah here, if you could tell him if it in fact was Babylon that was hauling him off, this is for the purpose one day that is going to result in the coming of Messiah that is going to save the soul of generations. This is going to be a great work that God is doing. But as for this time, as, as for your, your people in general, had turned their hearts from God. Obviously, this man didn't, but he got caught up in it anyway, but neither did Daniel, and he got called away as well. But God is going to do a work here. He's going to do a work that is going to result in the greatest act that has ever occurred on this earth, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it seems that you're in depths now, but God has brought you down for the purpose of doing something even so much greater. He's refining his people for his purposes. Verse 6, O oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon and the hill of Misar. 
And so the psalmist, in essence, is saying goodbye to his home church, if you will, saying goodbye to Jerusalem. I will remember you from the land of the Jordan. He's just thinking the land that is on the other side of Jordan, which would be Babylon, that is east from there, um, from uh, the heights of Hermon and the hill of Misar. The uh, hill of Misar is in the range of the Hermon Mountains, which is northeast of them as well. So he's just saying from these furthest places, at least to their mind, it doesn't matter. I will remember you. Lord, I will never forget you, regardless of where I am brought, regardless of the things that I am going through. It's the reason why we study verse by verse through the Bible, to remember the Lord and remember the promises. Because again, what is the avenue for your trust? The avenue for your trust is the word of God. God is in who we trust, but the avenue through which that trust flows is is to God as he is seated upon the throne where he governs the affairs of men. Verses 7 through 10, deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All of your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Feeling of abandonment washes over him again and is perpetuated by the enemy again in the last part of verse 10, where is your God? The psalmist compares the trials and the difficulties his experience to the abandonment of God that has left him in the mercy of these waterfalls, these waves, and these billows. And the idea is, is that God has left me to the mercy of these things. But his problem here is, and again, this is where a lot of our problems lie as we're going through difficulty. The difficulty that is in our life has been brought, or at least allowed into our life, by God. It's not something that took God by surprise. It's not something that God tried to disallow but came in. Look at verse 7. Deep cause into deep at the noise of your waterfalls. These are now keep in mind the psalmist, he could only describe power in so many different ways. And have you ever been at the base of a big waterfall? There's a lot of loud and power that is there. And so that's what he's talking. He's comparing this trial to a waterfall, but he's realizing that it's God's waterfall. This is something that God has allowed into my wife, my life. The waves, the one I was just talking about that drug me under, and the billows. All of your waves and billows have gone over me. Once again, these are trials that God has allowed to go over him. And so God's hand, God's hand is in the hard day. But that's okay, because once again, God is working out his will. If you don't recognize God's part in the allowing of a trial, then you will not see God's purpose in the midst of a trial. You will think that it's somebody, something that the devil, if you attribute your trials to the devil, then you're going to, as you attribute it to him, you're not going to see God's reason and purpose in that. If you attribute it to chance, once again, you're not going to see God's reason and purpose. Now, it's not God who necessarily brings the specific trial, but allows the trial into your life. We see that in the book of Job, the things that Job experienced, God had allowed into his life. And so God allowed those into his life for, again, God's particular reasons and God's purposes. Once again, though, he comes back to where he needs to be in the last verse, verse 11. Why are you so cast down, O my soul? Have you ever asked yourself that? 
why am I in this condition? Why am I depressed? Why am I, why am I allowing these things? Somewhere along the line, I've lost focus. Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. It's as if he's speaking to himself and reminding himself, trust in God for the future. God's got purpose and plans. For I shall yet praise him, the help of my uh, countenance and my God. I shall yet praise him. I know there's going to come a time when I overcome. And I know just as I miss that time that I've had in the past, and maybe it won't be exactly as it was in the past, but nonetheless, there will come a time in the future that I'm going to understand what God has done. I'm going to realize God's glory in the midst of this, and I will praise him for that. I, I, I will praise him for the waterfalls, for the waves, and the billows. It's going to be hard. Don't want him to come back into my life again, but I will praise him for the work that he's done. I remember looking back at the hardest time that occurred, the hardest things that occurred in my life, and for me, as I look back, it was a transition from the secular job that I had into ministry, and it was hard. And I can look back now, and I can praise him for that, but in the midst of it, it was as if those waves kept coming, and I couldn't get my next grasp of air. It was a hard thing that affected me to the core of who I was, but I'm able to praise him as I look back and understand that he was doing a work for a purpose of transition, and he does that in our lives, and we need to see that, and we need to understand that. And sometimes in the middle of it, maybe the only thing you're going to remember throughout all of this, I will yet praise him. At some point, I'll know what he was doing, or at least I'll have an inkling to what he was doing, and I'll praise him for it. I'll praise him and come to an understanding of the goodness of my God. And it's then and only then that you understand that you're coming to a level of maturity. Hope and faith, those key elements that are linked together in 1 Corinthians 13, 13 with love. Love, love is that which is going to last forever. But there's going to come a time when you will no longer need to trust in God because you will be with God. You will be with God for all of eternity will be in his precious presence. We so look forward to that day. But until that day comes, we have this psalm. And what this psalm tells me, learn to value what you have today. Learn to value the people that God has given you. Learn to value even this next moment as we finish the service and we're worshiping him. Learn to value this opportunity that we have in this building to come together and to minister. Learn to value one another as we're in the fellowship area. God's given us tonight as a gift and value one another and minister to one another and enjoy one another. <clears throat> one another. And, and understand that there's those who so would desire to have these things but no longer do. And realize that God, God is doing a great work and God is going to be faithful to complete it. Father, once again, we just thank you for your goodness. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to see, even in the midst of the storm, that your hand is there and that you uphold us and you care for us. And as you do, it's for the reasons and purposes that you have for our lives. God, that you so desire to use us. But Father, there's just this refining and this maturing that is necessary in our lives. 
And so, Father, this, I don't know how long of a span this psalm was and, and the situation behind it, but you do. And, Father, you know the situations behind our lives and the things that we deal with. And I pray, Father, that the bottom line is, is that you would strengthen our faith and that our hope, Lord, would be increased and that, Father, we would be strong because of it. And so, Father, continue this great work that you have started. And as you do, I just pray, Father, that we would embrace it all. So, Lord, just meet those who are here tonight. I pray that you would go before them. I pray for the people that we have prayed for tonight, that you would bless them and meet them where they are at. And, God, just do a great work in and through our fellowship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? Just a couple of things.